Welcome to the Resilience Rising podcast with me, your host, Jen Scottney. With the help of my guests, we will be getting curious about what resilience is, how we develop it, and the times we've used it. This podcast is here to explore all things resilience. I'm welcoming Rowan Dixit to the podcast today. Rowan is a neuroscientist who studied how meditation changes the brain at Harvard and Stanford universities. He has also learned and researched on meditation among monks in the Himalayas. He is the founder of Leaf Therapeutics, where he's developed a wearable device which provides heart rate variability, HRV, biofeedback. He's come to talk to us about using this biofeedback as a powerful tool for improving emotional regulation skills and increasing self-awareness. And I'm guessing increasing resilience, but we'll let him talk about that. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. Pleasure to be here. Ah, So I know you will get asked this thousands of times, but I think it'd be really helpful to kind of clarify what HRV is and the biofeedback. What does that mean? So HRV stands for heart rate variability. A lot of people may have a measurement of this on your watch, on Apple Watch, um, on your Fitbit, if you have an Aura Ring. What HRV is technically is the variation, the heart rate variability, right? The variation in your heart rate. And that's actually, it turns out, a very healthy thing. It indicates how much resiliency, you could use that word, in your autonomic nervous system you have. And the autonomic nervous system is really what's responsible for generating your emotional state, as well as has a ton of connections with this idea of recovery, particularly from stressors, whether they are mental or or physical stressors as well. And is the heart rate variability, is that something that we've always had from birth, children have it, would we see it in babies and completely natural? Completely natural, very healthy signal. Um, And yeah, you know, everywhere, everyone from an infant to to a very old, um, uh, to an elderly person has heart rate variability. Those patterns will change over the course of your life. Younger people typically have more heart rate variability and we know as well from, from the research that many times younger folks have more resiliency to, to certain types of stressors. They tend to bounce back um, more quickly. Uh, perhaps HRV is part of the story there, although we're still learning a lot of this is research in labs around the, around the world. Um, I think what is interesting to note is that particularly over the last decade, but really since you know, the late seventies biofeedback has emerged as a way for people to improve their HRV, uh, in real time. And, uh, I can talk about what biofeedback is, but that I think is, is incredibly promising, whether you're an athlete, whether you're a special forces soldier, whether you are, um, an office worker, it's not enough to simply measure HRV, um, and measure these biomarkers. You need to learn how to take control of them and improve them. How do we do that? Like I, you mentioned about us having these wearables and I've got a kind of sports watch, which will tell me my HRV. But I've always been kind of 
of the view or actually these wearables aren't that accurate for my HRV. So I use actually the camera on my phone and I take it at a very specific time. Um, how accurate are these devices? Um, f- how reliable are they for HRV measurements? So I think there's two lenses to look at the question of accuracy. One is measurement and the other is doing biofeedback on that signal. In other words, learning how to increase uh, HRV in real time through your own conscious willpower, essentially. So, so, okay, the first bucket is just measuring, which I think that's where most people are at. Let me just measure my HRV. Um, there are there are challenges with a lot of the wearables that are out there, Apple Watch or Ring. These are beautiful, amazing technologies. Um, the sensor that they use to detect heart rate, while it's quite convenient and, uh, and very cheap to manufacture, which is, you know, has helped get it to millions and millions of people, it's not super accurate. So if you want accurate HRV, you typically will need an ECG or an EKG, an electrocardiogram. And that's going to be measuring rather than light bouncing off of your, uh, off of your skin and your blood under the, under the skin, um, whether you're wearing a ring or, or a wristwatch or clipping something to your ear, the EKG is actually measuring the electrical activity in the heart. It's much more accurate. So anyway, that's on measurement. I think, uh, you know, the, tool that I invented, which is called Leaf, um, is an EKG for that reason, because it needs to be accurate. I think the second thing I just want to mention, which is this, which is biofeedback, which is training HRV up in real time. That, again, you need accurate data. Um, and that stems from the way that biofeedback works, which for your listeners who are not familiar with biofeedback, I often call it a superpower. The original biofeedback experiments were with fingertip temperature and they asked people to raise or lower the temperature of their fingertip, which should be impossible. But it turns out if you have an accurate digital thermometer clipped to your finger and you're watching it in real time, the little fractions of a degree go up and down, you can learn to control your fingertip temperature with your mind. That's so pretty that's amazing. <laughs> it, it's incredible. Um, and and I think, you know, the key there is that you need accurate real-time data. And so for HRV biofeedback, you know, I think it's very important that people think about accuracy in particular, you know. Just kind of really getting to where resilience fits in with this, just so that we've kind of, we don't get bogged down with the HRV, the measurements and things. Like, how does this link, like, what are we seeing when we're seeing these numbers of for HRV? It's mm, a great question. So grounding it in, in resiliency. And I think for your listeners, there are a couple studies, a couple examples to, to think about. You know, when we think about resilience, um, there are so many perspectives to to view that. But I think one of them is looking at high stress jobs. And so there are two studies. One was looking at special forces, um, military, um, in a simulated environment whereby they were made to hold a mock rifle. They were in a virtual environment that would simulate either, um, 
having an IED, an explosive device, while driving in a Humvee, explode far away, actually explode next to their vehicle. There were scenarios that were, you know, pretty harrowing, I think, for most of us. Um, and uh, and yeah, and essentially they measured these folks' resiliency according to a couple of different resiliency scales, as well as their HRB, which is this, you know, what we've been talking about as well. And what you found in these soldiers who had mostly been in active combat and had returned, now they were doing this virtual study, and and in in the data was that folks who had more resiliency to these stressors, for example, during the simulation when the bomb exploded or when a child was uh, attacked, um, when they were going through a marketplace and there were... Um, you know, when there was violence or threat of violence. In all cases, what they saw was that people who responded to those stressors better, in other words, they were resilient, they had higher HRV. So I just want to put that out there as, as one example to connect it to reality, which is what is resiliency except being able to bounce back from stressors more quickly? And you know, I think that there is good evidence, even in very dramatic, highly stressful situations in professions like the military, like firefighting, there, um, there does seem to be this connection between increased resilience and increased HRP. Wow. And how did you get into studying this and making it your life's work? I struggled with uh, anxiety and depression as a, as a teenager, found a book about meditation uh, that my mom had lying around the house. And that made a big impact on me. So that's why I became a neuroscientist. I've been yeah, studying the mind, trying to understand my own mind. Mm. Yeah. And like I've, I mean, I practice yoga, meditation and things. And I suppose I kind of came to it because, um, or returned to it because it, it, it felt good. But I wasn't really, I wasn't able and probably still not to kind of articulate the science of what was happening. So did you find the same, that you kind of felt the effect before you understood the effects? That is literally the thought I had, uh, as a, as a 15 year old, I think, um, you know, started meditating, made a big impact. I thought something must've changed my mind, my brain. And, uh, yeah, that led me to study neuroscience and, and try to understand these things better. But yeah, everything starts with your direct experience. Doesn't it? <laughs> and curiosity. <laughs> yes. And what sort of research was out there when you started looking into this? I think neuroscientists have a arrogance, have an arrogance, um, a conceit perhaps, which is that most interesting things about the human mind are located in the brain. I was no exception. Um, my first experiments in the space were around wearable brainwave sensors, teaching people to learn to control their, their mind and learn mindfulness, meditation, et cetera. Um, through measuring signals from the brain. I think where I learned something that I'd never expected um, and was surprised, and this has sort of guided a lot of my work now, is that the heart actually has an incredible amount of emotional information and that the heart and the mind are intricately interconnected. And it turns out by becoming more intimate and familiar with your own heart, you can actually change how your mind interprets situations and, and uh, and yeah, that's, that's been a big learning for me. 
Wow. So you swapped the sensors from the brain to the heart and suddenly found some new information there. It's a beautiful, poetic, almost, uh, uh, <laughs> discovery, but I think maybe this has been something that people have known for thousands of years. We, we even have this in our language, right? I'm heartbroken. My heart is full. Um, I think these things are not, these aren't just terms of phrase. I think it, it appears to be reflecting physiology. Mm. And in that kind of meditation, either the early meditation that you found, or as I mentioned, when you were out in the Himalayas, like other different types of meditation, do we need to know what the different types are to start looking at this? Or is all meditation good? There are so many types of meditation. When I was traveling through the Himalayas, I met dozens of different sects and styles and um, can talk more about different types of meditation and the differences relative to things like interoception, um, whether your attention is focused versus open, there's many, many differences. But I think the true simplest answer I would give a friend and a family member is that just starting with the simplest thing you can do, which may literally be one minute in the morning, breathing slowly, feeling what's happening in your body. If you can become consistent with that, that can be the beginning of a discovery uh, process with your own, yeah, with getting more familiar with who you are and how you're feeling. And um, yeah, so that's, that's typically what I would recommend. I think just starting with anything that you can do consistently. Mm. Yeah. yeah, forming that habit, isn't it? And so that's moving on to kind of what you, the wearable that you've developed. We've talked about why it's accurate in terms of the measurement, but what, what are we doing with that information that you're getting? So the product that I have helped launch along with my team, who is incredible, is called The Leaf. It's, um, it's a wearable EKG. And yeah, essentially the way that that product works is to measure how our HRV is changing in real time. The device will turn on when you're dipping a bit lower than perhaps you should be. And it will vibrate. And essentially we teach people to, in its simplest form, really just breathe along with it. Raise your HRV and... Um, and yeah, we give these little micro moments throughout your day at the moments that you need it. And I have to say, Jen, that typically when I'm doing, uh, when I'm talking to people, especially in a podcast like this, I'm usually quite stressed and I, the, uh, the leaf will let me know. Um, but I, but I think it's a testament to your, uh, very easy, uh, interviewing style that I'm actually doing quite well. I most of your <laughs> Uh, I, I mean, what's going to happen? Are we going to have an alarm sounding? Do you need to leave the room? <laughs> okay, you're showing me in. <laughs> and uh, it looks like green, blue. That that's, Is that good? <laughs> that's the good stuff, yeah. So uh, the big thing with HRV is it's difficult to interpret your data. No one knows like, what these numbers mean, really. Mm-hmm. So that's where we spend a lot of our time. How can we simplify things? We make it a color. We help you just learn to feel your body and understand somatically and, and really experientially 
oh, when I breathe in this particular way and this number goes up, I actually feel better. And so that's the kind of like aha moment that we want everybody to have. And just going into the breathing that I suppose it links back to those kind of types of meditation. Um, Is it observing the breath? Would that be enough? Do we need to slow down the breathing in all circumstances? Is there a formula where you can go, yeah, count for three, then out for for six? Like, is there a magic number or does it vary between people? The beautiful thing about having the data in front of you is that you can experiment with yourself. Mm. What works for you may not be what works for somebody else. We have found, I think that there are certain types of breathing mechanics, which tend to increase HRV for most people most easily. And so we call that a downtime breath, um, which is just some jargon, but essentially, you know, it is a inhale um, holding waiting for the device to cue your, uh, your exhale, which is designed uh, through the mechanism of the, of the sensor to correspond with your heart rate naturally starting to decelerate. So for your users, uh, listeners rather, who are not familiar with HRV and the connection between the heart and the breath, typically when you are relaxed, your heart rate is actually following your breathing pattern to some degree. You breathe in, your heart rate goes up, you breathe out, your heart rate goes down that wave pattern in our heart rates can actually be accentuated. And so what we teach people to do and what you can learn, you can kind of do yourself, even very crudely, if you just hold your thumb um, against you know, uh, your wrist and try to measure your pulse, you'll notice when I take an inhale, my heart rate goes up a little bit and you can see and you can feel uh, when you exhale, notice that heart rate slowing down. That's the beginning of learning how to breathe such that you are moving your heart rate in a more variable pattern. And that seems to have all these great effects on mental health. And just kind of, we, when we talked about meditation, now we're talking about breathing. Like, is there any other practices that the device will prompt you to do? Is there anything in terms of visualization or outside of breathing? Yeah. So we're really focused on just HRP and biofeedback. Um, some of our clinicians are clinical psychologists, they are psychiatrists, they're mental health professionals. So what one can do is pair biofeedback, essentially pair the skill of getting into a higher HRV state with a cognitive technique, for example, that you might want to practice. So for those people who have therapists, um, many times you're using techniques that pull from CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Those techniques oftentimes will be very semantic, very cognitive. They're focused on things like reframing your, um, let's say, worry if I'm anxious around, hey, um, is this person that I'm speaking with um, on this podcast, are they, are are they appreciating what I'm saying? Is this coming across the right way? Um, oh, I never do well in these situations. Um, that sort of cognitive distortion is like a very, uh, widely practiced, uh, uh, sort of technique that many psychologists and therapists, et cetera, will teach you to do to reframe things and, and say, Oh, actually, you know what? Um, 
this person is seems to be listening. I think that I think that this is going fine. I think that uh, we are we're communicating well, and um, and I'm going to try to continue to do my best, and that and that is good enough, right? So so these sort of reframes can be paired with HRV biofeedback, um, and there's really an infinite menu. I think that one can start to connect traditional techniques of psychotherapy with moving physiology and, and increasing HRV, but I think we're in early days for that. Mm. And in terms of the kind of time it takes for HRV to rise and I guess also drop, like are we talking quite instant in if we go to those breathing practices, for example, do I have to sit there for an hour to get those, get my HRV back up? We did a clinical trial, which we published about a year ago, showing that we can teach people, someone who's never done biofeedback before, how to increase their HRV almost 50% in just three minutes of doing a biofeedback practice. Wow. So pretty instant. And I guess that's why it can be quite user-friendly in that you see those results. That's right. And I want to I think um, give credit to heart rate variability, HRV biofeedback companies that have been out there for many years. For example, there's a company called HeartMath, which has been around for a decade plus, if I if I am understanding correctly. Um, and this technology itself was co-invented by researchers um, decades ago some of whom, like Dr. Dick Everts, are now advisors um, and mentors to, I would say to me personally, as well as to, to Leaf. I think what Leaf has done differently, what we've tried to do differently, the reason why I was tinkering in my garage and built a weird prototype that ended up a product later in the first place, is that, as you noted, you, know, you can really change your HRV quickly, but what you want to be able to do is have that happen at the right moment. And it turns out that your HRV is fluctuating naturally throughout the day very quickly in response to psychological stressors. So if you were to do a traditional biofeedback exercise, you might do it in the morning. You might do it on your lunch break. That probably is not when you're most stressed. Um, what I really wanted and what Leaf has, has created is the ability to go throughout your day and continuously in the moments where you need it most, get feedback exactly done. So as and when the stressor is upon you. <laughs> yes, because I've always as well, the reason why I was, I've got into the habit of taking my HRV kind of first thing I do as I'm waking up, which I was when I was lying in bed, but now I've been told I should have been sitting, but was that it does fluctuate with well, exercise with digestion and things like that. So it was that the constant measure wasn't so accurate. But I guess that you are, um, well, I guess you know when you're under stress or is that what you're hoping that we know when it's the stress that we need to deal with rather than something out of our control that we don't need to worry about? Yeah, HRV is affected by almost everything. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> your diet, your sleep, your mental health. Uh, <laughs> if you're sick, 
your age, your height, your weight. I mean, I guess also hormones, because I know that my reading just suddenly shoots down when I'm in like the luteal, last day of the luteal phase in my cycle as well. That's exactly, that's a perfect illustration, I think, of even within one person, how HRV can change, you know. Um, so, So what you can do to get around that is either try to find a period of time during the day where everything stays as constant as possible. So for example, many people, especially athletes will take a single measurement in the morning when they wake up, maybe they stay in bed. Maybe they don't even get up. Maybe they'll do something very regimented and the same sort of practice every day. Like, Oh, let me get up and wait for 30 seconds and then measure my HRV or whatever. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, that's an example that. Um, yeah, that's exactly what I do. And, you know, I think there's many varieties of that that people are experimenting with and I think should try. But the truth is, and what what we've seen in our own data, you know, wearing this thing constantly, consistently, is that you need more viewpoints into your own um, time series of, of HRV in order to make any sense out of it at all. And typically you will need the help of some algorithms because it's just too much to try to understand yourself and and figure out all the different correlations and permutations. And, um, and yeah, so I think that's the advantage actually of having continuous monitoring. You are able to collect more data and a computer is unable to use that, um, to understand your baselines. Mm. And, And that can be quite helpful. So you can interpret what's actually really going on. And kind of what what is the goal is it that we cruise through kind of never having these stresses and that we're always in that kind of parasympathetic state that or is it that we are aware that when we are getting stressed and can do something about it and that's perfectly normal i'm so glad you you said what you did because isn't that the siren song of i think so many fake mental health products on the market, which is this dream that you will always feel better all the time. (laughs) Just positive. A (laughs) hundred percent. Positive. And I'm, I'm I'm calling. So please tell me I don't have to feel like that because that's a lot of pressure. (laughs) And, uh, and the good news is no, um, uh, surprisingly enough, life will have its ups and downs and and it will continue to be what resilience I think can, can teach us and what HRV is, you know, one, window of looking at resilience can show is that when you do encounter the inevitable stressors that you will in your life, how quickly can you respond? How quickly can you get back to your baseline? And that actually is a trainable skill. That in of itself is something you do have control over. And so that is what I recommend people, you know, uh, that are trying to leave for the first time or really just trying any type of mental health practice or even physical practice, just Give yourself empathy, allow yourself to not always be perfect and try to learn the skills that it'll take to shift yourself and, and heal yourself um, is another way of saying it in those moments where you need it. And all the kind of stresses that will usually I was going to say always, but maybe usually affect your HRV and thereby this kind of a 
linked into the emotional regulation. Like, I mean, my vice is caffeine, so I'm hoping that that's fine. But I mean, like alcohol or sugar or not getting enough sleep, like are these sort of rules where now we can see that actually these could be linked to our resilience? Yes, I think the research is still early there, but it does seem to be the case that these substances, the things that we eat even in our diet, um, our sleep, our level of fitness, all these things have a dramatic effect on our HRV and they in turn have an effect on our mind, you know? And, and I don't say to people, you know, we're doing, um, we're doing a study now with a wonderful researcher at Harvard, uh, David Eddy, who has done HRV biofeedback work with substance use patients, people that are struggling with addiction for many years. And we're now using the leaf to see if we can, we can kind of build on some of that research. But what I think, you know, what I think David would say, I, I hope that I'm not uh, mischaracterizing him, is that there are limits to an abstinence-only approach in addiction and substance use, for example, and that's true of anything, anything in life. And so if you love your tea or you love your coffee in the morning <laughs> and, it, <laughs> and it tanks your HRV, well, um, that might be okay. I and don't have something... it in the afternoon because I know it affects my sleep. So I do make some. <laughs> so we're, we're working with the data and we're mid right? And I think the thing that HRV gives you is, is insight where you might not have it. And I think the biofeedback component gives you those, those breathing skills, those regulation skills to try to bounce back. Um, you know, if, if something's out of your control and you, and you feel that it's important to, to shift your state, but yeah, life like anything else is, is an experiment and, and uh, people need to see what works for them. Mm. Are you still learning in terms of wearing the device yourself and show me that app? Are there still things that surprise you? Every day. <laughs> okay, well, if it's still, <laughs> if that's the case for you, then I don't feel so bad. <laughs> and actually, like, I was going to ask about addiction in the sense that you've kind of talked about, well, particularly on the blogs on your website, like about anxiety and depression. And I can really see, particularly with anxiety, of how this practice can help. But I wondered what other... Um, of help that it can give for disorders or conditions um, if there was anything that it really wasn't sufficient for or wasn't appropriate for? Look, I think in mental health, we've been looking for biomarkers for 100 years. HRV is downregulated in anxiety. It's downregulated in depression, in substance use, addiction, in PTSD, in bipolar disorder, Really, I think every major mental health condition besides OCD has a lower HRV component to it. Um, whether raising your HRV can help, that is the subject of a lot of research. In anxiety, it's been looked at a lot. There are big meta-analyses now. It works. For depression, there also are, there's a meta-analysis released a couple of years ago in, in the journal Nature, which is a very well-reputed scientific journal showing the same thing. But I think you know, we're still learning and still in the research phase about, you know, exactly how useful this will be across all the mental health disorders. I want to make one point though, which is that 
people think of mental health as being this binary, I am ill or I'm well, I'm I have anxiety or I'm normal. That is not how your body works. That is not how anyone's body works. We are a spectrum. And, you know, wherever you're starting, wherever your baseline is, is perfect. It's great. It is where you are beginning. The goal for LEAF, uh, you know, as a product and, and hopefully for our customers who, who, you know, use this tool to change themselves and change their, their health. Hopefully the, the attitude that people are taking is let me instead take wherever I am, whether that is technically clinically anxious, whether I'm, I have no clinical quote unquote anxiety, but I, and I feel great, but I want to feel better. How can I, how can I shift myself, you know, further into the mind states that I would prefer to be in and that are better for my own mental health and the mental health of the people around me. And just thinking when we were talking about the kind of trends that when we were talking about caffeine and alcohol and sleep and things, like what are the positive, aside from using the breathing practices, are there any other practices that we know can increase HRV across the board? I mean, you mentioned exercise as being one, but I'm guessing that that could be taken too far. There could be too much exercise. Certainly. So, so short-term exercise will decrease your HRV, mm-hmm. you're putting your body under stress. Yeah. So longer, yeah. exactly right. Uh, longer term that, you know, builds more capacity of the system and typically you're end up having better HRV over time. Long-term athletes will have typically extremely high resting HRVs, you know, um, there are techniques that can reliably raise HRV. Many people, for example, will do practices like dunking your face in cold water. <laughs> oh, I dunk my whole body in cold water. <laughs> or your whole body. Uh, and Wolf, I think has shown this, you know, to thousands and thousands of people, um, having a poo. It's another one that a lot of people don't know, but is uh, for reasons we can talk about, which are quite interesting, actually, tends to raise HRV quite a lot, um, which is why I wonder if, you know, when dad is on the toilet all Sunday reading his newspaper, I wonder if, if he's feeling he's feeling well, uh, more than more so than normal because of that. Okay, um, so what's the science behind this? <laughs> We've gone there. Yeah, I, I think that so... Um, there is a maneuver called the Valsava maneuver, which is something that um, is recommended for patients who have certain certain disease indications. It's often can be used for people that have anxiety. Um, and it's also a, a good measurement of your autonomic nervous system health. And the Valsava maneuver is basically kind of like leaning over and kind of like <clears throat> sort of tensing and, um, and pushing downwards. Uh, you think about it, it's, it's very similar to, to what's happening when you're relieving yourself. Um, uh, so, so I think what's happening is that some of these same nerves that are involved with defecation, um, it turns out that they actually, if you trace them back up, they innervate your gut, then they innervate your heart. And then they're going direct, directly into your brain, in some cases into parts of your brain, like the insula, which is responsible for determining and helping create our emotional state. So, so yes. 
Wow. The body. It's quite, I was just expecting you to tell us to go for a walk or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I should have. I should go have on, you know, be in nature, those sort of things. <laughs> Being in nature is great too. Yes. Uh, okay. I'll, I'll and I think another thing that people have found with HRV is that places where you can connect with other human beings, that tends to raise HRV as well. Social connections where you feel a lot of safety. Um, as well, I would say, uh, this is not always immediately apparent to people singing. So there have been studies that were done on Scandinavian choirs and churches where they found that when one is singing, especially in unison with other people, but this happens just yourself as well, your HRV is greatly improved. And so, you know, um, there are so many ways that one can improve HRV. I think it's a, a matter of finding things that work for you and, and, uh, doing those consistently. And what's the future? Kind of where do we go from here? I suppose one thing, like, for example, my watch tries to tell me, although I I don't wear it at night, but I did for a few weeks just to see what it looked like. But that kind of what phases of sleep I'm in, and I'm just thinking, I'm not sure my little wristwatch can really know when I'm in these different REM sleeps and deep sleeps and things. Like, what's the future with wearables and also kind of where do we go from here in terms of measuring biofeedback? I wish I could <laughs> look into crystal ball. Um, you know, I think HRV is an incredibly important biosignal. It might be the most important. If you had to pick one biomarker to track about yourself, it's non-invasive. Um, I was going to ask about that. Is that because it's so easy to take or is it just because it is the most useful? I think it's both. I think mm. it's a combination of both. Um, we've known about HRV since the 1950s when it first emerged as a signal for all cause mortality in cardiology. HRV is this amazing, you know, bridge between the physical and the mental. It's the mind body connection. It is the reason why athletes and biohackers, as well as people with anxiety and depression are both getting benefit from improving this biomarker. Why is that? Well, it turns out our mind and our body are linked. There is no separation and, and signals like HRV, which are easy to measure and correlate with signals in the autonomic nervous system that are very interesting and then helpful to, to uh, understand and to, to analyze, to improve. I think those type of wearables will, will end up providing a lot of benefit to people. And right now, I think we're in sort of this phase one of all these wearables where people are just tracking. Mm. What I hope people start to learn more is that tracking is only half the equation. You need to learn how to increase it, to move it in the right direction. And that active training is what is known scientifically as biofeedback, that I think is the next step and wearables that can offer people the superpower of biofeedback. Granted, it's difficult to learn. You need to really practice. You have to put in the time. Um, but if you're willing to put in, you know, we did a clinical trial with eight weeks. If you're willing to put in the time to learn this skill, it can be incredibly helpful for you across a lot of different domains. And um, you might not even need to wear that wearable. So is that the goal that then you can, you know, rely on this yourself without the beeps and the vibrations and things? And do you find that that happens in people? Is there a certain type of people where that happens quicker? 
Certainly. Um, I, I probably, uh, you know, would sell more widgets if I, if I answered this a different way, but (laughs) the way that I think about this is like training wheels on a bike. So how can you learn to feel what's already happening inside your own body, your own heart? How can you learn to gain that interoceptive ability and an awareness of recognizing how your body shifting can change your mind, the mindfulness component. And then as a second corollary to that, how can you learn self-regulation techniques, breathing, biofeedback to shift your state? And, you know, those two things, I think data in the initial stages can be quite helpful, although you don't even need it, but it can be helpful in order to know what's working um, best for you, how to actually improve these biomarkers in the most optimal way. And also to build that mindfulness component. But once you have, um, God bless you. I wish you, I wish you the best and, and go live your life because that's, these are tools to, to live better lives. They're not, um, you know, yoke hanging around your neck, um, indefinitely into the future. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, I find it really hopeful and positive that if I speak to people where they think they're stuck in patterns or they are an anxious person and I hear that quite a lot and actually this is really empowering that we have this I mean we have the device but we also have this knowledge and these tools to break free of those paths and patterns and that's really hopeful isn't it I hope it helps people and it's certainly helped me I don't think you're wearable. Is that available in the UK at the moment or is this just in America? Currently, it's only available in, in the United States. But um, if people go to our website, um, getleaf, G-E-T-L-I-E-F.com, um, you can put your email into the newsletter and we will be launching in the UK and, oh, okay. and in, as well um, later this year. So. But there's lots of blogs there and information. Like it really feels... Um, like an amazing time at the moment for getting a lot of free knowledge and information, both from like your company, but also the other companies and podcasts that are out there. Um, I'm not sure we've had that in the past. It feels like, um, yes, that we can kind of opportunities have opened up for us all to get this knowledge. It's an exciting time, I think, for for all of us as human beings who have minds and have relationships and, and um, want to live our best. I think the, the immensity of information that's out there, the tools we have available, there's never been a better time to. Um, and and yeah. are you hopeful that this will start to see a reduction in kind of mental health issues that we have and globally and particularly kind of post pandemic um, it feels like, and I don't have the stats, but it feels like, you know, this is a real issue for people today, the mental health. And are you hopeful that given the tools that, and the knowledge that are out there that we can reduce that, live a better, <laughs> more resilient life? That is my greatest wish. <laughs> I, I think that, you know, giving ourselves the space and the tools is the first step. And if we all go along this journey together um, and support each other, you know, whatever tools you're using, therapy, going for walks, um, and apparently now reading, reading the newspaper on the toilet. Well, uh, yeah. (laughs) Um, Let's, let's do those things. Let's, and let's support each other in, in, um, 
walking along this path because I think it will improve our own lives. It'll improve the lives of the people around us and maybe makes a better world. Well, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and taking the time today to explain um, how science can make us more resilient. Such a pleasure. Thank you, Jen. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Resilience Rising podcast. If you have enjoyed this episode, please do help people find us by hitting subscribe, leaving a review or sharing us with others. Thank you so much and see you next time on the Resilience Rising podcast.